our guest today, it's, it's kind of weird because I hadn't had an episode in a long time. And Floris from Path was like, hey, I want you to meet Frank. He knows a little bit of something about medical stuff. And uh, he was concerned about your coughing and spitting up blood. And this is like from way long ago. And I'm like, I don't need it. You know, I don't need any help. I've already gotten that taken care of. No issues here. I don't know. It may have just been allergies or something like that. Then, of course, a week later, I run New York City Marathon. And I have that thing where I don't know what happened, but I'm coughing up. I couldn't. I had to stop running every like every few feet, I was able to string together like a hundred yards and then I'd start coughing and spitting stuff up. And by the end, it doesn't start with blood, but by the end there's blood because I'm coughing so hard um, that I think I've irritated the esophagus. And I'm like, is this, is this crazy that I have had no issues for like a year? I get an email from Flores hooks me up with Frank here and I start coughing up blood and I don't know what's causing it. uh, But that's the, quite well, the introduction. We might get into it, yeah. <laughs> so, so, Meg, who do we have wow. today? Yeah, so Frank Sanchez, the Doctor. chief physician associate. Um, Frank, welcome to the show. I don't. Thomas just had an, a very interesting introduction there. So. That was a pre, pre, yeah. preamble. I know. I know. It's hard to follow that up. I didn't know this was going to turn into a, like a live surgical console. Yeah, <clears throat> pretty much. Uh, but uh, yeah. So, so it's a pleasure to, to be talking to both of you. Um, follow the, uh, the podcast. I'm, uh, you guys keep me entertained on all of my runs and all of my long drives home from to and from the hospital. So I work at UM Jackson Miami Transplant Institute. Um, I've been back here for seven, but a total of like 15 years in this hospital. I was actually born in this hospital. It's rather scary. Oh, wow. Uh, so you stayed there. <laughs> yeah. So stayed. I, uh, I, gra- I did all of my training here after school, and then I did my uh, postgraduate training here and my uh, surgical residency in trauma here across the street. Literally, the helicopter behind me is from my colleagues in trauma. And I did trauma and critical care in Miami, which is like, uh, you know, Maryland shock trauma. Um, you know, very uh, aggressive, very uh, knife and gun club, um, and got really interested in cardiothoracic surgery after my training, and I went away to Cleveland Clinic. I uh, was up in New Hampshire for a little bit when my wife went to law school, and uh, when I came back, I just came back to, to this hospital, and I've been here ever since, and I do heart and lung transplant for adults and pediatrics. We also do um, regular conventional cardiac surgery. So when I heard about um, you know, on your podcast and you were mentioning, this was a couple episodes back because I'm catching up on all of that, all the podcasts and I'm fuel for the run is by the way, one of my, my favorite podcasts with, with Featherston. She's doing an amazing job. So you, kudos to you guys and having her on board. She's a huge asset. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I also have a degree in nutritional science. Um, so I, I could tell you that half of the stuff that we learn when we're in medical school and PA school and advanced nurse practice school and stuff is is peanuts compared to what Featherston uh, does. Um, so they don't teach us any of that. We go, but our vitamins and minerals section is literally like a couple of handouts and a, and a day. <laughs> so it's a, it's an insult. So she is a, a gem. So if you ever have a physician trying to tell you about nutrition you should stop them there and be like it's good i got it covered we got feathers good so i I won't even bother touching on half the stuff because i think she's so good um but then i heard about you coughing up blood and i helped floris on his podcast as uh, one of their uh, coaches for um 
advising medically um, with his PD program, which uh, for those of you that are familiar with math training, he has a huge math training um, entourage and he has several coaching calls weekly, bi-weekly, I think that we do so many of them. And he does a great job at going over this stuff. And I, and I, you know, went on to chat with him and I said, you know, I'm really concerned, you know, coughing up blood, no matter who you are, unless you have a history of smoking, vaping, um, tuberculosis, you know, it's very, it's very concerning to all of us. But then I heard you saying that, you know, uh, Thomas, that you had that scenario where you kind of like were choking on a gel. Totally normal has happened to many of us, maybe more to people like Megan who run in the close to sub three range as opposed to matter of fact she doesn't have any problem with gel (laughs) (laughs) she's great with gel so it's not an issue for her i you know i've never seen a kenyan choking on any other nutrition so maybe it's just us slower people (laughs) um but you know i sympathize because i'm more like you thomas i'm sort of like a 315 pb bq runner so so I'm not your, you know, uh, elite like uh, Kafuzi and 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 Megan here. I don't know if I would call Kafuzi elite. <laughs> 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 now, it, isn't he? Doesn't he have a non-elite as yeah. his title? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I kind of scammed off of him a little bit on my Strava as like non-elite endurance rank because I thought that was so funny. Um, Hobby jogger is what I should go with. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. I won't, I won't even get into that lately I'm down here in South Florida training. It's, mm. it's all hobby jogging, it seems like, with this weather. Yeah. Huh. Um, but, yeah, when, when you mentioned that about coughing up blood, you know, so we so we get very concerned because, um, you know, and I don't know anything about your history, and I don't think that you want to get into this, into this podcast and giving everybody mm. your, your medical history. I don't care. Um, but, if you, <laughs> but if anybody if anybody had a history of smoking and you're coughing up blood, then then it's an issue. Yeah. It's a real issue, and and we need to evaluate it, and we need to be intelligent about it. And I think that uh, you know, obviously, you had a workup done, um, and you had some studies, and you immediately replied, and you said, "I'm good. I had these studies, and I felt, you know, assured, you know, things." But yeah, it's a haven't had it. It's a weird thing. It it does happen to be early spring and and mid fall that this seems to happen when it does happen. I don't. It seems like I get like phlegm or post-nasal drip and for some reason when I'm running or making an effort it starts dripping down and getting into the br- the breathing pathway instead of the um I guess the throat and right. I start coughing and it just exacerbates it and it, it seems to be that's the thing I gotta tell you like I was like kidding around with Meg last night but I hate to say it but after I got the COVID shot I never had this issue before that and I've had the issue after after that, and I, I can't imagine, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but that's the only thing I can think of that's changed in my medical history. Uh, I don't smoke. I don't do anything. I have no idea, but it all started after I got my first first inoculation or whatever you call it. Yeah, it's quite interesting because we've had this conversation on many a long runs with all my running partners down here in South Florida, and one of the biggest, you know, like, things that was worrisome for me is I felt really good pre getting my mandatory kind of COVID shot at the hospital and I didn't want to get it. Um, you know, but then in order to protect patients, cause I was working in, in departments that we were putting patients on life support. And there were many times where, um, we were going in rooms and the nurses won't even come with us. They would leave all the supplies outside. We would put the patient on heart and lung support 
and they would just be there handing you stuff like literally like one arm through the through the window with yeah. a mask on and and so you'd be and my my partner and I would be like putting patients on the board or taking them off the board and we'd be like it's interesting that the ventilator is blowing all this air right at us you know from the exhaust on the side you know, and we're wearing this N95, and this, this thing is about as good as having toilet paper on this guy. <laughs> so, so, you know, he wound up getting COVID. I didn't. But then I got COVID in the cruise ship. So there you go. go figure. I felt like you. I kind of had really bad pulmonary stuff post-vaccination, um, and I didn't feel the same. And my, my running performance has not been the same ever since, but I've also turned into my 50s. I'm 51 years old. And, um, you know, I, I just don't feel like I can run the same as I did before. I don't think it has to do with the vaccine per se. I think it has to do with multiple other factors, to be honest with you, that I'm working on. But I think that, uh, you know, we won't know. We won't know the answer to that for quite some time. And I don't want to be the person that puts out uh, conspiracy theories out there. I think Joe Rogan has that covered. <laughs> well, <his podcast. laughs> you know, and I've listened to all of his controversial podcasts and stuff. And there's some interesting data there and there's some not interesting stuff there and I think we have to sift through it but we won't know for a very long time. All I can tell you is that people like yourself and myself should have routine medical follow-up especially if we're over 50, anyone over 40 um, that we should have a chest x-ray done if that's the case um, you, you know, with your primary um, and if your primary is blowing this off it's time to find somebody else um, that won't blow it off because I think that this is a significant concern. I saw my primary yesterday and I had this discussion with him and I'm like, listen, you know, I want to go over my blood work and I want to go over this and that. And he's like, you know, if you're really worried, we'll get a CAT scan. We'll, we'll look at it. We'll, we'll, we'll dig in deeper, you know, but I kind of feel like because I'm in the field, he's doing it. Um, but no, he's very thorough. He's like that with all of my friends that I sent to him. So these people exist. They're fantastic. And um, my primary is, fantastic and so i encourage you doing what you did thomas is a responsible thing yeah. um, but to answer your question it goes so the coughing could keep coming up from one of two ways so you take the gel you start coughing it's coming out of your airways you might have had some gel micro aspirating into your that's lungs. what i think is happening and then you can irritate the, the the thin linings there, and that can cause an issue. Uh, can you? I can't imagine how Morton responds to lung tissue. That might be an interesting study. Yeah. <laughs> or actually, take second. What is it? Well, it, it's kind of strange because yeah. th- I have stopped taking the Morton because it seemed to happen when I was taking Mortons, and uh, you know, I use I still use the other product that they have. Just during the thing, I I went away from using the uh, gels. And, uh, I took, they had the new 160 and I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll take the 160 before the New York city marathon. And I think it's coincidental. Um, or I, I don't think it's causing it. It may be, maybe it makes my mucus a little more thick or sticky or whatever to, so that I can aspirate it. What I, I, what I don't, I also had a, a head cold for the last couple of weeks going into New York city. And, uh, funny enough that I was doing, I felt like I was able to hit my paces with the head cold for training. And I was training, I was using like 750 as marathon pace. So I was hitting all my workouts. My entire build up to New York was just fantastic. I'd never had such a good build up. So to have the result stung, but it was so bad that I was like, this is beyond me just not having a good day. This is really bad. Um, but 
The other thing that I found out is one of my friends who I was with all weekend got he tested positive for COVID after New York City, and uh, another friend who was there with us a lot. She uh, had to go to the doctor because she couldn't breathe, like she was struggling with breathing, and he prescribed her a inhaler. So here's two people I was spending a lot of time with. One had had COVID. And the other one, I don't think she got tested for COVID, but was having trouble breathing. So she went in and the doctor gave her that. But these were both symptoms of sort of what I was feeling on race day. So I'm kind of thinking it was just like a perfect storm maybe. And who knows, yeah, maybe no, I had right. mild allergies or something. The air quality was supposedly not good that day. I don't know, yeah. man. That's running, We right? don't realize it. No, but that's running. And, I, and, I, and again, the fact that you stuck it out is impressive because I for, for Strava, I would have – not even bothered. <laughs> I, I thought about it. it. From my, I erased it from my watch. I'd be like, I cannot have people. I mean, I've done Ironman. There's no way to God that I'm going to have this on my Strava. Yeah. But um, the fact that you stuck it out and ran, you're like, you probably thought to yourself, well, probably more complicated to get to the finish from here than it will be to just keep going along this train. That was part of it. The other part was, I was just like, if I quit now, it's ego. Like, I am purely quitting. I'm not finishing this race because I'm afraid of the time result. Because I wasn't looking at my watch, but you know when you're walking that you are not doing 750s. Um, oh, oh yeah. yeah, unless you're Megan. You're not yeah. doing 750s. I literally like parting her way to the finish line with 730. Yeah, so I, you know, it, I, I made a decision. I was like I could give up and not cross the finish line because I'm concerned with appearance of times and paces. Or I could be like, this is my 40th marathon. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I want it to be done. I want it to be over with. I don't want to have to get back on a start line and be like, now is my 40th marathon. And I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to finish. I was like, I can do this. I, my body felt fine, but it was, I just couldn't stop coughing. Well, congratulations. Because let me tell you, 40 marathons, I spend my life around triathletes. And, you know, triathletes think that they're the shit and that they're better than everybody else. And we did. Like, we did a know, couple triathlons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. You think that you're like, oh, my God, I swam, bike, and ran. And I swam is horrible. Bike was horrendous. The run looked good. You know, yeah. but, um, you know, triathletes are super, super, super type A. And they don't DNF. Nobody wants to DNF, you know. And my wife and I are both triathletes. That's how we started. And the first time that she DNF, she was like, you know, drop on that stuff that didn't exist then. You know, she said, you know what, I've done enough races that if I have to stop because of my body telling me to stop because I just wasn't going to, it wasn't going to end well, then it's the right thing. And I can tell you that most of us, if we would think that way and we would put our ego aside just a little bit, and I think you guys touched on this with, with Kafuzi, like he was doing a couple of races and he didn't really care about performance anymore. He was more concerned about, um, having fun and making it through the experience. And I think that going through the experience of New York is, was more impressive. Again, and if you're Megan and Megan, Megan Square, running through New York, waving at everybody yeah. like they were doing, then you might have like, you know, how's your shoulders, Megan? They're, they're, they're good. Yeah. Surprisingly good. <laughs> Do you know how angry you know? that made me to watch that video though? After, <laughs> after like hobbling my way five hours into to the finish, yeah. see Megan yeah. and them just, darting back and forth and we had some fun going yeah. fast i'm like ah. have, you, have you guys ever sat at the finish line of some of these races like uh new york or at the end of like boston and just hung around if they let you i maybe more you guys because you guys are you know popular but people like me they kind of like shoe us to the end of the corral i don't think but that I volunteers around. know who we are <laughs> <laughs> 
if you hang around there, I hung around New York last year <clears throat> when it was very hot and we did it and I finished there right. and I hung out right before my friends a few minutes before them. I saw all these people coming through. It's so inspirational and I think it really solidifies why we're in this to begin with. I mean, we're in an era where if time really mattered, the only people that would be racing would be Megan and Megan and it wouldn't be us. Right? It wouldn't be the 315ers, the 335ers, the 4s, the 430s, the 5s, It wouldn't be any of that. It would be like back in the day. You ran in the, what was it, the A6 Tiger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a couple millimeters and the important times were the people breaking three or faster, right? And um, breaking three was kind of like to get you in the club. But I remember a lot of my friends that back in the day, this was 25 years ago when I was started running competitive, they were like, yeah, you're just not fast, you know. So stick to triathlon where a 315 on the marathon at Ironman is impressive, but it ain't going to cut it out here with us guys running, you know, 24. (laughs) So it was rather interesting. So I give you a lot of credit for for having finished that event because I think that's what it is. It's about enjoying it now. We reached that point where performance is not going to get any better to an extent. And you see some of these people on YouTube and on Instagram that are like pulling out these races and stuff, you know, and that's fantastic. They started much later, most likely, nine out of 10 times. And um, like you, Thomas, you've been running forever. And, and Megan, you know, it sounds like you've been running competitively for a while now. How long has it been? Uh, 10 years, maybe. So I didn't do yeah, the traditional okay. like high school track and all that stuff. So I kind of missed out on all that, but... Yeah. I, I do find like when you see like in, at at our age when you see a, a fast like sixty year old guy or somebody and you're like just and you're like whoa and I'm like how fast did that guy used to be like was that guy a two thirty marathoner and now you know he's running three tens and I'm like wow you're super fast and he's probably like man this sucks <laughs> you're right you're right that's that's a lot of our friends are like that where I have a couple friends that have stopped racing. For that reason, because they can't post the times anymore. And I'm like, I really don't care about that. And I mean, it's important to me. You know, it is important, I think, to everyone. We're, no one's here is going to, most of us are very competitive to begin with. So I think that's important to really kind of, for our own mental sanity, you know, who cares what Strava says? You said it the other day, or you were talking about Dr. Kafuzi when I heard it today, and you said, well, if I run a 950 on my easy days, my easy days now, my easy days used to be 8, 10, those are my easy days. Now my easy days are 10.40s, 10.10. And I'm like, what are people thinking? What are people thinking about nobody, my run? Oh nobody my gives a nobody crap. Cares. Yeah. But nobody cares. Nobody cares at all. The, the worst part about it is, is that I what I did this last training, which I really liked, is I really tried to go by feel. So even when I was doing my paces, that uh, it makes my coach, so she would give me my hard paces, I was hitting my workouts. But I was doing it by feel. And I think the damaging thing about having a Garmin or a Koros or something like that is I've had good runs that I enjoyed the run. Like I was out there and it felt good and it was it was a nice run. I was connecting with nature. I was feeling the vibe. I was in the moment. And you get home and you see your pace and you're like, hmm, that sucks. And it 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 just shits on your run a little bit. <laughs> and yeah. And I'm yeah. like, if I hadn't looked at my watch, that was a f- fantastic run. And since you're not racing, who gives a crap? Nobody cares. Yeah. And I'll tell you who cares even less is your heart. So I can tell you right now that based on that, like the first question that you sent me, Megan, was fantastic. It's like, you know, 
what uh, so one of the questions was you know cardiac uh, we're seeing all these individuals at cardiac events going down and having um, heart attacks and sudden cardiac death and we're hearing about it right it's popularizing news and people and the question that you that had asked by one of the listeners was you know what's going on you know and really what's happening is that over the last several years the number of participants in events has gone up exponentially right the number of participants that are n- not necessarily trained to be racing um, has gone up exponentially. I'm the medical director for the Manny Marathon through Lifetime Fitness, and I've been there since 2008 uh, when it was offered to me. And I went from running it to running it medically. And I can tell you that um, there, there's, a, there's one study that resonates with, with what we're going to talk about, which is the racer study, uh, literally like the word racer. And that study took in nine to 10.9 million runners over the time frame of like January of 2000, all the way through May of 2010. And, um, in 2012, they published a study and it looked at it and out of 10.9 million athletes that ran halves or fulls during that time frame, only 59 had cardiac events. And out of those 59 mainly were men, as you can imagine, um, 40 plus age groups. Very few were women, uh, and out of those two, out of those numbers, forty-two were fatalities that expired uh, either at the scene or at the hospital. And so, what people—the misconception that people have—is that there's a, so that to think about it, there's ten point nine million people that have raced during that time frame, and only forty-two. Which is, in my opinion, like when somebody says, "Well, how many deaths have you had in your transplant?" And people, and I said, "Well, you know, we lost two patients last year." And I went, oh, that's not much. That's great. And I'm like, yeah, but those two patients, I took to heart. And every time something right. happens to a patient, I take it seriously. Like, I, what did we fail? What could we be better? Same thing with marathoning. If we lose an athlete on the course, that's somebody's brother, mother, father, you know, sister, uh, child. So to me, it's important. And but you look at the sheer numbers, it's, it's very little. Most of them had um, a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a, a hereditary condition where your heart <clears throat> starts to thicken in some of the chambers abnormally. Can you and get tested for that before of, you start running? Or you, you can, you can, yeah. And I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. But yes, you're right, you can. And the other one was um, ischemic cardiac disease, which is coronary artery disease, which you hear about hardening of the arteries yeah. that you get, and that leads to, to attacks. So um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, is you could get uh, tested. You can be seen. Your primary care physicians can, can do the studies. Uh, some of the studies that are incorporated are echocardiograms, which is nothing more than an ultrasound of your heart. Uh, a baseline simple EKG, where they just, which everybody has had at this point in their life, um, can can really, in the good eyes of a sports cardiologist uh, and under a keen uh, evaluation, can can pick up um, <clears throat> enlargement of your left of the not just the left ventricle, but some of the ventricles in, in some of the uh, atria's in, in their cardiac physiology. More important than that is that um, we it's a very low incidence. So the bottom line is that we shouldn't stop running. The benefits of running outweigh the risk significantly. And we've had transplant patients have gone back to doing triathlons and have finished. We have had them run marathons and half marathons and 5Ks. And what we tell them is to basically back off on the intensity. It's more like the 80-20 rule. Like we give them more like I prescribe more like 90-10, to be honest with you. Uh, which I wish I would take my own medicine because <laughs> 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 I'm like Thomas, you know, in that sense. So, 
more like 90-10 should be what we should be at. And, um, you know, and that's what we prescribed to them. Um, but we found that a lot of these individuals um, that went down during these events, um, the ones that were safe in this study had had early CPR done on the course, either by a bystander, uh, by medical personnel, or by a fellow runner. And I can tell you that in our race at the Manly Marathon, one of the things that I did to implement it because it's so hot down here, and subsequently I found Kofuzi and um, he uh, had run the half marathon last year. And uh, so that was quite interesting. I wish I would have known that he was here. I would have, you know, picked him up and, and, uh, and chatted with him a little bit more. But I think he was like, this is, it was really warm. Yeah. It, was, it sounded <laughs> it was like a hot day. <laughs> and Tommy Runs was here too. And I ran into Tommy and I chatted with him before he met up with his mom. And he was like, this is sick. And I'm like, how are you using just, um, uh, he races with UCAN. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I need like four caffeine Mortons to get through this race if I was you. But uh, hats off to them. But, it, you know, it, it being very warm uh, down here, one of the things that we do is that I put, um, I ask for a, a automatic external defibrillators, AEDs, like the ones you see in your offices mm-hmm. and stuff that they pay me to put. I had those AEDs uh, throughout the entire course. And the first year I contacted the representatives for the company and I said, I want one at every single aid station in the race starting at mile one because we could see people go down at mile one all the way to mile 26. And at the finish line, we want two, one on either side of the shoe. And um, race directors down here um, picked up on it very quickly. And people like Ted Mateus, who's the race director for New York, who happened to have a grassroots guy that was with us here in Miami and started off like putting up barricades and setting up the course. And now look at him. He, you know, his medical director in New York does such a great job. They do an amazing job. And they get, what is it, 50,000 runners? Mm-hmm. Right? I, I stopped at a tent during New York to see because I was How like, was it? It, was, it was really good. They came in. They did the stethoscope on the chest. They uh, So this is at mile 11. I'm like, this shouldn't feel like this. Uh, maybe I, that was my one thing. I was like, if I'm going to drop, I need to know if I should drop. Or if I'm going to continue, I should know that it's, not a bad idea. So I stopped at the uh, medical station at, at mile 11. They listened to my chest with the um, stethoscope front and back. And they did my temperature and with a finger thing. I don't know if it does uh, blood or heart, heart uh, monitoring and temperature, but it looked like it was a temperature thing. And they said to me, they said, uh, you're okay. If, do you want to continue running? And I was like, if I'm, if you guys are saying I'm fine, then yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and finish today and, and went out. Yeah. But I'm, I'm guessing that you guys have a protocol when you see somebody go down that there's like steps yeah, that you take, which step number step is stopping their Garmin or Coros for them. <laughs> <laughs> step number one okay. as soon as you stop in the medical tent we uh, we teach all the nurses and staff to stop the guard you'd be surprised how much i have to educate the staff we have yearly lectures that we give them when they come recruiting from the hospital and we recruit from a local hospital here that's amazing uh, baptist hospital um <clears throat> it used to be the hospital that i'm working in now but then the contract changed and yeah we tell the nursing staff and everyone i'm like these these people are dead serious I mean, don't look at the body habitus. Don't look at what they're wearing. Don't look at the bloody nipples. Don't look at any of that. These guys are out there. And if you stop them, you better tackle them and drop them to the ground and, and zip tie their hands and legs together because they're going to want to keep going. 
So we have a way in which we kind of keep track of people and we're, we'll radio from one aid station to the other. And we'll be like, runner 1645 is wearing, uh, you know, X banded top, wearing this kind of hat and shoes. And they came here, they got sodium, they didn't look as good. We checked out their vitals. We let them go back on the course, but beware, they're out there. I don't think, just because of the sheer numbers, that New York does so They took down my number. Gonna, I don't know <laughs> if they, they did number down. Yeah, they took my number down. Yeah, they'll take your number down and they'll kind of keep track. And that's how they kind of keep like a historical uh, data of who came through the tent. And so their tents are set up very much like ours. And you'll see that they'll have an AED in there. They'll have uh, some of them in some of their tents. They'll have a physician out there, but at the minimum, a nurse or two or three. They'll have wheelchairs. They'll have fire rescue. And I think in their course, they have also ways of being able to deploy um, mobile fire rescue units throughout their 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 uh, five boroughs. So it's a very complicated um, system that they have running there. And then their medical tents at the end are. I think they have something like three tents throughout the entire. Um, you know, course. And at the end, at the finish line, they have multiple wheelchairs. And as you're walking by, if you collapse, they grab you, throw you in a wheelchair, and they just whisk you away, and you go into oblivion. And they take care of you. Um, so medical tents, we can have an entire podcast about how medical <laughs> tents run, and, and that would kind of be crazy. But um, stop your garment. It's going to be my next thing that I'm going to tell people. Yeah. You have to stop it real quick, especially if they're on the floor. Um, but that leads me to like the second point uh, of this is, is you know, do I recommend any heart studies for people who have no symptoms whatsoever? That was one of the very good yeah. questions asked by one of your listeners. And by the way, they were great questions. Uh, and the answer is yes. Um, two of the studies that we recommend is the EKG, which is the standard one that we just said. The other one is a coronary artery calcium score, which is nothing more than a simple CAT scan of your heart and looking for any heart needs of the coronary vessels, which is the ones that feed blood to your heart, which is a muscle, as most of us know. So the coronary calcium score is uh, usually not covered by most insurances. It's somewhere between the realm of nothing to $200, depending on your insurance. Mine cost me $100 um, to get it done. And then athletes can have higher coronary calcium scores. Inherently, we know that for a fact that athletes can have um, higher coronary calcium scores. And typically... Those athletes, um, we follow them up with further studies. So we'll do the coronary artery calcium testing, and then we will do also a, um, a CT scan of the chest with contrast if necessary. So say your coronary artery calcium score is supposed to be scored from 0 to 2,000. comes back, and 0 is what we want to see, no calcium. It comes back somewhere in the realm of 100 or so. Uh, or say 15, depending on the threshold of the doctor that you're seeing, they may say, you know what, Thomas, you're 52 years old, you're not a smoker, but you're otherwise healthy. They look at your cholesterol panels, and we'll talk about that soon. And, you know, you're at elevated risk just by age and just, you know, sheer, you know, number of carbs that you, let's just be ridiculous there. We won't even get into the carb discussion. Um, and, and you're now eating a carnivore diet, you know, so they, they wonder, you know, should we do something about that? And, you know, the question is, uh, yeah, the, the next step is we're going to evaluate this. If that score is slightly elevated, they make it the uh, calcium uh, score back, and they'll say we want to do a CT angiogram. So the CT angiogram is, is the same study as the coronary calcium uh, scan, except that they shoot contrast to your veins. <clears throat> and then the contrast goes into the arteries of your heart, and then they can see the inside, how narrow it is, if it's narrowed at all. 
the calculus score looks at the hardening of the vessels. And when it gets to be hardening, that hard plaque, that's a very late stage disease. And some physicians consider that to be too late. But quite honestly, it's not. We can use it as a screening tool. And it's a very good screening tool because it's very cheap. It takes six minutes to do. And it's available in every institution that you go to across the board, especially where you guys live in, in Baltimore. There's a lot of great centers. So is is someone coming to get this test because they have symptoms or you're suggesting that everyone should just have this done? I think that everyone over the age of 40 who has had, uh, who is new to the sport, has never raced, um, and is otherwise uh, healthy, um, they can go two ways about it. You can, okay, I'm over 40. I feel confident that I, you know, I've always followed up my primary, primary care physician. My cholesterol numbers are, you know, pretty okay. My particles are okay. He or she says that I'm good to go. I don't need a baseline, but they're getting it as a baseline. I recommend it as a baseline. Mm. See, now this is for cra- everyone across the board. This is crazy because I, I, I go and do uh, the um, inside, tracker. inside tracker all the time. And so I, I follow my blood work and iron and, my cholesterol, without a doubt, is always high. Like it always has been. And I'm exercising quite a bit. I have a healthy diet. Uh, I don't eat too much red meat. I don't, like I'm not doing anything crazy. And without fail, my cholesterol is always high. But what are your particles is what we want to know. So it's great that you mentioned this, but for those, for we now have known historically over the last several years that cholesterol alone is not a good enough indicator of whether you have disease or you don't, because we all know that your cholesterol numbers could be elevated, but what are the particles that are under that, under that cholesterol? And there's two studies that we look at that are now kind of like the standard of care. <clears throat> One of them is ApoB, which is the protein found in your LDL, which is your bad cholesterol. Uh, and that protein accounts for more dense cholesterol particles, right? And then we look at uh, LP little a, and LP little a is protein uh, that attaches to the actual LDL cholesterol, makes it worse uh, over time. So once we get those two numbers back, with those two numbers, we can more realistically say, okay, listen, Thomas, yeah, your, your cholesterol of 235 or 220 or 250, yeah, it's significant, but your ApoB is low and your LP little a is low. So we're just going to keep an eye on this. We're going to really sit down with a good nutritionist. We're going to call Featherston. We're going to look at it. Um, and we're going to, and then we're going to get the coronary calcium score, right, to be safe. We're going to look to see if we have anything. And if it's like three or two or it's supposed to be zero, to be honest, but it's supposed to be not being able to see anything. But let's say it's a thousand. It comes back at a thousand. We're like, okay, you know, we're a little concerned. And I think now we're going to, what we're going to do is instead of going and taking you to the lab, the cath lab, and sticking a catheter in the artery and shooting contrast and maybe intervening by putting a stent or something like that, you know, a surgical procedure, we're going to just do a cath scan with contrast and see what the vessels look like inside. Does it have hard plaque or soft plaque? The soft plaque is the one that gets you into trouble because the soft plaque is the one that can cause, that has, is causing the most uh, atherogenic and it's the one that can eventually uh, have broken off and can clog that artery and then lead to a heart attack because it blocks oxygen getting to the muscle. What a, so what, that's where we get into trouble. What about like a family history and stuff when, when it comes to that? Like nobody in my family has had any trouble with heart, heart disease. Wait, which is fantastic. Family history accounts for a lot. So no family history, otherwise healthy, slightly elevated cholesterol, 
um, you know, you live the lifestyle that you live, um, then we go with the EKG, coronary artery calcium score, follow your blood work. We don't get too excited with moderate, mild elevations, right? And if all of those numbers are relatively low, like the more intense studies are relatively low, the EKG doesn't say anything abnormal, then we don't get too excited. <clears throat> we just keep an eye on things. We go by your symptoms. You know what's even more important? Our wearables. I want to know what, what those wearables are saying. I want to know if you tell me that you're running with your corals or your garment, and if you can wear your heart strap a couple times a month and get some good data for me and be like, my rhythm doesn't change much, my heart rate doesn't get jacked for any little thing, then I'm more comfortable you know, with that information. Well, that that's a good point because when I do end up in the hospital for something stupid, <laughs> like hitting my head against something, um, they they kept me longer because my heart rate was so low. They're like, you're only, you're at 45 right now. We need to monitor. I said, well, when I'm sleeping, it's 45. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where it is. So it They're is. not used to it. Yeah. And so that's a good sign, right? That's a very good sign. That means, so that goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier when we talk about um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and ischemic coronary artery disease, when those two scenarios can happen. And basically, you know, you have an athlete's heart and that's when <clears throat> you get, and you look at their heart and their heart is gets enlarged and everybody says, Oh my God, you have an enlarged you know, heart and ventricles are enlarged. Well, yes, that's transient in us runners. That's not something that's permanent. So if you stop racing now and you take a six month sabbatical because you're busy, you know, at work and et cetera, you're, you'll, you repeat your echocardiogram. We'll see that that goes back to normal nine out of 10 times. Like Grinch. But when you have hypertrophy, <laughs> right. <laughs> but like the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a genetic, disease right and those individuals it just those ventricles those areas stay enlarged they get fibrotic and then they get diseased and then down the road they can lead to sudden cardiac death on the field and those are those people that are born you hear about those you know 10 or 15 year olds that was playing football and just mm-hmm. dropped dead <clears throat> and those are the ones that we worry about right those are the people that they don't know that they have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy yeah. so that's that's a real big problem so um, and one last point I wanted to make about ApoB and lipoprotein A um, in general is that these these studies are very easy to do. I literally just got mine from Inside Tracker, um, yes. and I reviewed them. And you can get them on there, and you can go order all these studies and have it. And it's historical. And you know, take things with a grain of salt because if you listen to doctors like Peter Atia, who I think is fantastic, I've read his books and I think his podcast is great. Um, you know, he wants your ApoB, um, almost like when you're born close to 20, less than 40, right? Is ideal. So they'll put you on a statin, which is a pill that you take to try to see if you can, um, you know, get this ApoB down into that less risk, mainly to increase your long-term longevity. That's the reason why people are on it. But for some people, it does cause, you know, muscle uh, fatigue and it can cause rhabdomyolysis when they're training and racing. Um, and so you have to be, you know, careful of being put on these drugs unnecessarily. It does affect your mitochondria at some level too, but we don't want that. <laughs> the last thing you want to do something to an athlete like Megan, you know, you don't want to put them on the medications and having a low heart rate. Like you said, uh, Thomas, mine's 36. I, I recently went because I had a kidney stone and I was in the hospital getting it now you're removed bragging. and, Oh God. Yeah. But my heart rate was 36 and I had multiple people come over constantly and they kept messing with the alarms on the modern. I said, guys, just, just lower the threshold to like 31. 
like we can't it won't let us it's set like that from the manufacturer oh, I'm like lovely so it's gonna go off every 10 minutes you know so I was like I felt like you and they're like oh well we can't let you leave until it gets higher and I'm like well don't give me any pain medication and you'll see how much higher it's gonna get <laughs> you know so, well I, I think that's so, the interesting thing is the the dynamic range and the the heart like when I wake up yeah it's, it's really low but mine will when I start running it shoots right up but on a bike I can keep it really at a nice level like I, I it's almost like math training for me to be on a bike because that's where I can really keep that you know that ideal heart rate and if I could segue into that into one thing that's important I think for all of our listeners and, and, and the people that, are, that pay attention to anything that, that you guys say which I think is a lot of good information in your podcast and and feel for the soul is that you should be cross training I mean florist pounds that into all of his TV, um, you know, runners and he, he really forces it in there. And, and I don't want to seem like this is like a math thing. We're not like math disciples uh, at all. I think it's more of that dynamic training will help you in your longevity in the sport. And if you look at your Kofuzi, for example, is a great example, right? Michael went from right. A lawyer <laughs> sitting in an office and, and, and doing that to, now a sub three hour marathoner. I mean, and his longevity might be different as, than yours and mine, Thomas, who, who we came into this, we've been doing this for a long time. And then if we don't cross train, our longevity is just not going to be there in the sport. So I think that doing it and, and weightlifting is crucial. Yeah. You don't think crucial. about it when, when you're younger, cause you bounce back so much easier. <laughs> I, th- I find that it, it's almost mandatory for me now. Like I started, I mean, I even I don't even do a ton. I know that I should be doing more with my legs, but I actually do full body stuff just because, like, I I realized like I was just losing strength in my upper body, and from from running, like I my quads and my calves are are fine, but my my upper body was like we were moving furniture or something. I was just like this this shouldn't be this hard. Um, Isn't it funny how when you do like silly things and you get back and you're like, geez, all I did was go out and just move a few things in the yard and I feel horrible. Well, what's great is I I was just on vacation with a bunch of guys that are all in their 30s. And I I felt... But they're not runners. Yeah, they're not runners. So I was, I'm like, "Mm, you guys, you guys maybe start thinking about getting some exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's so. Let's take those guys for example. Say you take your thirty-year-old buddies that are, you know, from back in the day, a different life that you know, you know, like um, like even Robbie, right? Robbie was a uh, was not always a runner, from yeah. what I understand. Right. Um, take him for example. He he recently admitted that he was uh, going back to Beijing and that he he worked really hard to get off of that. And kudos to him because I can tell you one thing that we found during, and this is no research study. This is just my pure observation. <clears throat> People who feel that vaping is not as bad as smoking are deceiving themselves from a pulmonary standpoint and from a transplant standpoint, from what we see. We have seen more than a handful of patients who have vaped during COVID and gotten COVID and were vaping and subsequently wound up on heart-lung support. Mm. Um, you know, uh, for, a, for a long period of time, we lost a few. And then we have seen people who went back to vaping and subsequently have deteriorated even more. 
And then we saw people who just went off of it completely, and then we've never heard from them ever again. So we don't know what happened again. This is not a research study. Yeah. This yeah. is my personal observation. So I can tell you that the best thing that Robbie ever did was stop babies. And he knew it. He, he said it himself. He said, if I'm going to be running and I'm going to be doing all this exercise and I just felt horrible, my performance went down. No one's perfect. I'm not perfect. I, I wish that I could, you know, I had everything perfect in my life, but we don't. But we can control certain things. And the amount that we drink socially is great. And I'm all for it, you know, and I do myself, you know. It's all about you know, taking in, the, the, the having the margaritas. I'm a margarita guy. So Lance used to drink like Lanceritas. I have like Frankaritas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I, you guys have your cocktails and yeah. it's Emma Bates and that interview was great. Um, so yeah, drinking is fine. It's okay. It's not a big deal. But really smoking and vaping is horrendous. Not to mention the air quality that we have is not the greatest. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's some of these events that we go to. Um, you know, the smog, you know, people, I have friends who live in Salt Lake City who say that they have a hard time running. Uh, you know, certain times of the year out there. And it's, it's a real thing. So I, at those individuals, I tell them, um, if you could do that and you could get off of it, fantastic. Um, and if you can train indoors during those times where the air quality is bad, you'll see. And down here in South Florida, we do that. We, we have people who have gone to strictly training indoors because of the heat, humidity, and the extreme weather. And it's not a David Goggins thing that we need to go out there and, and, and kill ourselves every training. Right? Stay hard. Even though I'm a big I'm a big David Goggins fan. <laughs> I can see that um, by your hairstyle. It's like, this dude loves I know. Goggins. We're the same. We're the same. We're, we're just maybe, what is it, uh, 4,800 pull-ups apart. That's there about you it. But, uh, but, you know, but, but we, we train indoors. So I recently got a treadmill. I recently bought a, a Zwift uh, trainer. I got that. And now I'm... Yeah. Okay. So I do it in tour. Do you? Okay. One thing I'm going to recommend for your your uh, your treadmill, get yourself a lever. Oh yeah. I'm telling you, man. It when I writing it down, working through <laughs> an injury, it's the best way to come back from injury. Like when you start feeling good, and you know, like sometimes you start running outside, and you're like, ah, I still feel it a little bit, and you feel like you're doing a little damage, and then next thing you know, you're back on the. I need to take a day off because it's hurting again. Mm. The lever will eliminate that because you can take your body weight off. Uh, you know, like I think you can, the max is like 15 pounds yeah, difference. Like that. You take that, you can take that off and slowly let your body start doing the impact again. Right. And then you, when you feel good enough on that, you go outside or, or if you just want to run under your weight on the treadmill. And I, I find it to be one of the best ways to come back from injury or to avoid injury like if something's starting to feel weird i mean that, that that's a great point and for those people that don't know right a lever is like an alter g treadmill yeah. it's like yeah. basically it takes all the weight off it's like running in a pool yeah we have these things called pools in south florida everybody has one yeah <laughs> so it's the ultimate lever all right um, then, let's like skip the it yeah no, no, no. I like the idea of running with a lever because if you ever run in a pool for 25 minutes, great. Oh, no. That sounds terrible. No. I hate swimming. And I don't that, like the so, way the bottoms yeah. of the pool feel on my feet. Yeah. I go to the deep end and my pool is about six or seven feet and my kids are just watching me through the glass and they're like, what in God's earth dad do? And my wife just thinks that I'm a total idiot doing some of these things. She's like, why don't you just take a day off? Are you kidding me? I can't take a day off. Is, wait, is there I a wife out been. there that doesn't think we're idiots? <laughs> Well, considering the fact that only you have I had a conversation right now, and Megan's just been standing there going, "God, that these old guys are really, really a drag. They're a drag." Uh, she, I know she's she's, she's 
indestructible over here. No. Have you had any injuries, Megan? Yeah, I always have like some weird Achilles things that I can usually cure pretty fast. Um, so yeah, I think I'm an Instagram video. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I um, I am, I'm lucky in that way where I think some people are a bit more injury prone, and I'm, I'm less that way. Um, so I think I'm just blessed in that way. But before I forget, I really want to ask this because when you were talking about the test you should take if you were like in Thomas's boat, or I also have high cholesterol, um, pretty regularly. Um, the second test was to check for like plaque buildup. And is that something that you can reverse without a stint or some sort of medical procedure? Like, can you, or is that, that's in your life now? No, no, that's, that's a very good point. When our, when our body lays down calcium in our artery, it does it because there's been an injury there. And, uh, the school of thought, like Peter Atia's school of thought is that that's never a good thing. And we need to investigate it a lot further. And <clears throat> some people feel it's not reversible. There's some studies out there that say that, that it is like if you like the vegans and the vegetarians will tell you that they've reversed coronary disease that way. And there have been some really good um, data to indicate that if you do change your diet to that extreme, right, that you can reverse it. But there are that has to be done with the guidance of someone like Fredriston. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that everybody needs to call her, but you have to have a sports nutritionist or a good nutritionist that understands how to get your micros and get everything else down to, down to good levels. But is it reversible? Some of these things are reversible and we can uh, keep them at bay. We can use medications like statins that we talked about that what they do is that they harden these areas and they kind of like spackle it and they leave it there. And it's, that's not the one that we're worried about. We're, we're worried about the soft plaque. Those are the ones we're worried about. The goo. Um, so the goo, the goo that sticks in your in your vessels, and that comes from that really comes from when you look at it from all of us, and we're all guilty of it, right? We burned twenty eight hundred calories on this race or this run this weekend. I really put in like a twenty miler followed by a ten miler, and I'm eating some serious calories there. And now I'm gonna, you know, it's okay. It justifies my, you know, two thirds of a pizza with all this cheese and everything on. And if you do that during a training plan, think about it. What's that? 16 weeks, 12 weeks for some people, you know, mm-hmm. 12 weeks of not eating perfect or not eating as healthy as you can starts to add up over time. And if you have kids, I mean, I'm guilty of this when they were born and I, all of a sudden my diet started changing to like, you know, Oh, I'm going to finish their chicken nuggets and I'm going to finish their quesadilla and my son, you know, now I had to switch them to bison in order to get something healthier on this plate because otherwise I'd be eating all of their junk. But we are. So my PCP was like, what are you eating in your kid's diet? Like, what the hell are you doing? Your particles are through the roof. So when we talked a little about your ApoB and, and lipoprotein A, the best way to look at that is if you were to think of the, the lining of the inside of your vessels as a mirror or as a glass, right? If you were to throw marbles at it, those are the particles that we're talking about that are dangerous. They will break the glass. They will break the mirror. And then you can get all these other inflammatory factors to go into it. And that affects, that's what causes the damage in your arteries. Whereas if you have larger, fluffier cholesterol particles, the bigger ones, like a beach ball, you throw that against a mirror, throw it against a glass, it's not going to do anything. It's going to bounce right off and just go get down bloodstream. That's how we look at these. See, I was thinking so, about it like a like a when you were talking about it, I was picturing in my head like plumbing. Like when you see like a pipe that's all clogged up with like grease and hair and all that stuff, 
it catches on the side and starts to make it smaller and smaller and, and yeah. slows the water flow. That's how I was you have, you have to break the pipes somehow. So you break them with the, the particles go in there and they, the, the very small particles from the cholesterols, from the, the particles that we talk about, those are the ones that cause the most damage. The, the bigger the particles are, the fluffier they are, the less damage that there is or no damage at all um, that they cause. Is there any visual indicators of these things? Like, is there anything that shows on the outside that you can look in the mirror and be like, I, maybe something's wrong with like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for many people, if you start putting weight around your waist, we know that, that weight that, you know, the men that walk around, they look like they're like three months pregnant and stuff like that. And having, you know, your love handles all of a sudden increasing and you notice that you're putting on weight. This is where we put on weight. And that weight is also distributed around your vital organs, like your liver and your kidneys and <clears throat> around the important structures of your body. Those are the, that's the weight that we consider, you know, dangerous for people. And that should be one indicator um, that you're, that you're not as healthy as you can be. I'm not saying that everybody has to look like, uh, you know, um, like a poster child for Abercrombie and Fitch back in the day. But what I am saying is that you notice these changes in your body. You have to look into it. You have to, you have to keep an eye on these things. <clears throat> the other indicator that, that, that we use, um, from, from our standpoint that we keep an eye on with most people is that we, we want to look at historically what your weight has been and has it been picking up. So you guys keep track of your weight and you keep an eye on this and you let us know also your performance. Thomas, you made a pretty good point. If you're, if you're used to running a seven ten uh, pace, uh, for a marathon and all of a sudden you cannot, you can't, you cannot run seven tens, you're running seven thirties. This is important information that your PCP should know because not, not all PCPs are going to look at it and go, um, yeah, that's fast no matter what. They may look at it and be, but you should know. You should be able to tell uh, yourself mine, there's something going on here. Mine fluctuates <laughs> so much. Like I literally think that I am at the end of my running career. I'm like, it's over. I can't do it. And then the next week I'm like, eh, I'm feeling okay. It's coming back. Also, that is the good thing about Inside Tracker, at least for me. Like you can look and see, okay, I was struggling with these paces at this time. My iron was low. This was this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then you see, okay, when I'm feeling good and running well, this is what my body looks like. Right. But, and, and I think that that's one of the things that we need to look at. And, and so to, to answer your question, you know, what outside external, you know, indicators do we have? And, and that's one of them, you know, yeah. our weight gain and when it fluctuates in season and out of season. And that, then that pivots right into, should we have an in-season or other thing? You need absolutely need an off-season. I mean, when's y'all's next serious race where you have, like, a serious goal? Megan? <laughs> OTQ? OTQ? <laughs> I might be hiding a secret. I might be running CIM. It's the worst-kept secret. Yeah. Everybody knows you're running CIM. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, three weeks? Now. Three weeks? Yeah. Okay. All right, and then you're gonna hopefully you'll CQ at CIM, and then you can kind of like ride the wave, take a little bit of time off before because you've been hitting it hard. Yeah, yeah. And yeah I, I, I think yeah. my body probably needs an off season pretty soon. I'm taking yeah, my weird. first one that I can remember. I almost after New York, my gut reflex was to reload for a local one that's right after Thanksgiving, and I even had a free entry, and I was just like, maybe I just need to calm down. Let my body yeah. recover. And, and then, so what's yeah. what's the importance of the off season for your heart? Is that just 
very much because we know that that's a great question because we know that there's, you know, people ask us, well, how's the long-term consequences of all yeah. this endurance training for your heart? And in ultra runners, we have some data and Jason Coop has a good, um, you know, good book that he put out uh, as an ultra runner and talks about certain things in his podcast too. <clears throat> and one of the things that we look at is that having multiple times of year where you stress your heart to the level of a marathon or an ultra marathon, um, not a five or a 10 because it's kind of too short, but anything greater than a half, in my opinion, those are the, and you do that three and four or five times a year, that is where it starts adding up. And over a decade of time, you could be burning out and causing fibrosis to certain parts of your heart and not know it and inadvertently do it. And this happened in triathlon, right? So you might have seen the couple of years that you guys did tries um, that you saw athletes that would go to Kona. I know personally several Kona athletes that I raced with that um, a couple of them have stopped racing altogether because they had, they burned out their, they burned out their heart. And what does that really mean is that they had fibrosis in their heart from overtraining. And back in the day, my coach was Jeff Cutterback, who is amazing uh, triathlon, amazing athlete. And we used to joke around in our world of training would be like, what does the quarterback have today? Oh, he, I called him because I'm feeling very tired. He said, I don't need to swim the full 3,500 today. I can just swim uh, 3,000 with paddles and a pool buoy. And I'm like, well, that's not, so we're not cutting it back. So we would joke around. We're going to cut it back instead of the cut it back program. We we're just going to cut back the program. And uh, we burned out. We were training 20 hours a week. Oh, wow. Uh, and working full time. And so we delayed having kids. And my wife had, you know, all sorts of issues trying to get pregnant. We went through some nightmares trying to get pregnant and expenses. We wound up going to Cornell to, to, to have IVF for that reason. We have two beautiful children that, thank God, look like my wife. Yeah. <laughs> no. and, and my kids are now running cross country for the first time this last season. And I became their coach at their school. And I awesome. made it so that there's no real structure. It's all for fun. And parents are asking me about Garmin's and stuff and Strava. And I'm like, nope, nope, nope. We're not doing any of that. I want them to go out there and just have fun. And if they run, great. And if they don't want to run next season, they don't have to run. And nobody got cut from our team. We had 107 kids running. That's <laughs> awesome. It was insane. So When you, when you say yeah. take a step back from running it, or an off season, you don't mean stop running completely. You just Never. mean stop like the hard work competing and, and yeah. doing long distance and, and doing that. Yeah, like you, sense. yeah. The hard workouts too. Yeah. Yeah. So study, studies have shown that in order to maintain our aerobic fitness, as we get older into our fifties and sixties, it's imperative to keep that VO two max elevated because that's, what's going to help you with your longevity. So if you can do uh, easy workouts, uh, the majority of the time, right? And let's say, for example, a perfect example, you, you're, you're in your off-season. New York is over. You're going to take a break. You're not going to do your race, Thomas. So now you say to yourself, well, what the hell do I do? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to bike a lot more. I'm going to run a lot less. I'm only going to run to review a shoe if I really need to. I'm going to jump on that bike 80% of the time. I'm going to cross-train by maybe uh, long walking, maybe rucking with uh, up to 30% max of my body weight uh, in a backpack. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lift a little bit more and then come, which is what we used to do in, in back in the day, and come February, right, I'm going to start training for my next event. So, for example, if you were looking at a uh, spring marathon, say you were doing Boston, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to start training for Boston, <clears throat> seriously training for Boston in February, early March. But that's that's not enough time. <laughs> you don't need it. You really don't need it. You'd be surprised. How many years of racing do you have under your belt? 40 mm. years of racing. Let's say you take the average runner out there that maybe has, let's say Kofuzi. How many years has he been doing this? Seven, ten, eight? Probably somewhere in there, yeah. Eight years of running under his belt. And when did he improve? On your podcast, he said today, and I quote, I got better when I was doing some cycling and doing some cross training. And then that's when I noticed that I went sub three and I ran with somebody who was faster than me who showed me how to hurt. So, you know, I hired David Goggins to run. (laughs) You know, but he ran with. Yeah. But like, okay, so, but I'm looking at, like Boston is a possibility. I'm looking at Boston and London as my spring marathon. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that I don't need to start doing the hard workouts until a month and a half, two months out from there. Yeah. yeah. And there's two schools of thoughts here. There's one school of thought where people tell you that you could, you could do your heart. You start doing speed work early <clears throat> and then work on your endurance later. And then you have your periodization where people are like, no, you take it easy until then. You low heart rate train. You don't have to follow math, but you kind of keep it easy, conversational. It's every time you go out. And then you just finish two workouts a week with a little bit of high intensity for literally 10% of that workout. So if you're doing a six-mile run, then maybe you do a total, uh, you're doing like maybe 25 miles a week as your baseline. <clears throat> you do about maybe somewhere between three and five miles total of a little bit of intensity where you pick it up to the point where you're a little bit out of breath and you feel like you have good turnover and you just get into that nice groove and you're working on your body mechanics and such. <clears throat> but if you really want to take it to the limit, you do that high intensity on your bicycle and you don't need to necessarily do it when you're running. And that'll just save you from getting pounded out there. All right, uh, or you do you it on the trail. I know. Megan's your coach. Yeah. Um, no, I like this. But this I, is what I, it's good. I prescribe this. I prescribe this to. I try to prescribe this to my wife, and she basically just poo-poos on anything I say. So I really can't count. <clears throat> my wife is, is a brilliant person, so I can't, you know. And but I'm like, honey, if you would just listen to me, I, I swear I could get you sub four, no problem. And she's like, I don't need it. I'm out there having fun now. I have all my. I have my Ironman tattoo. I don't need. I have all these medals. So like, so she's really embraced the fun. I'm sort of still like ingrained in it. But I tell my my running friends this, and I, and some of them listen and have done well, and some of them don't listen and have done well too. And there's there's some of them in our community in South Florida where they are. And guys, this is true. They're they're doping at some level. Oh wow! At the recreational level, doping Whoa. is a real thing. So how, is how is that? South Florida. How do you get that? Because <laughs> like I'm in, that's, that's one of the things I've been looking for. Thomas, I'm going to give you my business card. No, no, doping, doping is is a real thing because uh, people at our age, right, in their in their 40s and 50s, will go to their physicians, and there's a lot of longevity experts and. Uh, fitness experts out there and they'll offer you your testosterone and your growth hormone. And we have a huge community down here. Of See, cycling I, I'd be afraid to take yep. testosterone just because I would be afraid that when I stop taking it, that my body, like I have a feeling that if you have it in your system, your body stops making it. And so if you, and, and is this just, yeah. is this a Compliment myth it. to me? Uh, but like, 
I'm worried that if I start messing with that stuff, that my natural levels would drop. Yeah, and there's no reason to to have to mess with, with that stuff unless you have a proven medical condition. Like for example, I always thought that I needed testosterone. I'm like, man, I'm getting, I just have no energy, and blah 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 blah. And I got my testosterone tested, and it was like 500 and something. And I'm like, well, I don't need any testosterone, <laughs> you know. But down here, everybody is like, we. I know people that are on it. I know dads on on my son's little, you know, uh, recreate. Um, sorry, competitive soccer teams and stuff who. We chat about it all the time. We're like, yeah, so-and-so's doping and so-and-so's, you know, riding That's in the so Peloton. <clears throat> but it, it's a very competitive nature out here. Talk to some of your cycling friends in your groups and you'd be surprised the number of people that are taking enhancements like DHEA, uh, which is over the counter and you can get, and I don't want to get into all the supplements that are out there. That's a completely separate, you know. See, yeah, I always thought that stuff was baloney. I thought that was like, like, just selling dudes on, like, hey, that's real. No, stuff. it's real. There's a there's a there's just a full market for for all of this stuff out there, yeah. and and we you don't realize on the way home. <laughs> and get some stuff. I will tell you one thing that's really good is uh, we're all and and others can can attest to this. We're all not taking in the right amount of protein, and her the times that she has professed it and, and discussed it in their podcast is. You know, it's excellent information, and there's uh, several different ways to supplement that. Um, I'll try to send you guys the link to a podcast that was um, in Jason Coop when he talks about protein supplementation and, and how to get it from essential amino acids and stuff. And I would love Feather's opinion on it down yeah. the road. It would be a great it would be a great conversation with her about EAAs instead of BCAAs and how they're different and what they mean and. And um, I think someone with her knowledge would be fantastic to talk about. Like, for example, I used this in my entire last training cycle, essential amino acids from, um, I mean, I don't get any money from this company, from Thorne Supplements. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just basically an additional 30 grams that I took was in a, That's in crazy, a I think shaker I've, bottle. I've asked her about amino acids before. You don't need it if you're eating the right diet. It seems like Featherson is very much into, like, if you don't get it from your diet, and you can't get it from graham crackers, then you don't eat it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. The ga- so, graham cracker crust. Yeah, yeah, it's it's out there. You guys see, she she caught up uh, fluorescent to come up with past projects, graham crackers, like for food you on the leech. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so, but I mean, those are, so my tips for people and what I tell them to do, you know, the bottom line is um, <clears throat> when it comes to things such as COVID and respiratory illnesses and things of that nature is, if it's above your neck, like Thomas, if you had all those symptoms above your neck early on in the week, it's okay and it's safe to, to train and race like that. Um, people can use over-the-counter decongestants and you could kind of treat your symptoms as you go. Um, we always tell people not to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like Advil, naproxen, um, Why? ibuprofen, because it causes renal damage. It can lead to renal failure in people because it's metabolized by the kidneys. Okay. And Tylenol is metabolized by the liver. It's not any better, but it's safer so in the long run. If that. a runner is having problem with inflammation or soreness or uh, pain tolerance, what should they be taking? So that's a great question. If you're actively doing a, uh, an event, we, we at our aid stations have Tylenol for those individuals. We do not give them um, Advil. 
And I think everyone should kind of have a baseline as to what their labs are. So if you know that you have a fatty liver and liver damage and you have a history of, of alcoholism and or have any history of liver issues, then you're staying away from it completely. And you've already been seen by a physician. And that's a great question for your PC. Hey, if I'm in an event, if I'm in a situation, what's the best thing for me to take? And they may, and there are doses that are safe even for that population of patients. And there's patients of ours that we've recommended that. We never tell them to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. It increases your risk of bleeding that we don't want. It can cause renal damage that we don't want. And um, it's a host of other cascades. And I think it's you know extremely dangerous while you're racing and training afterwards. <laughs> if you take some Advil <laughs> afterwards, after you hung up your shoes and you're at home and what have you, yes. That's fine. You do not want to premedicate a run or an exercise with Advil or mm. Tylenol. If you have to take Tylenol or Advil to train, I would hope that your partner would slap you silly <laughs> and be like, what in God's earth are you doing? Because you should be hanging up your, your shoes like Dino Mira said in her recent article where she said that one of the five lessons she learned was to just take three days off. Which I will never do. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that's that's what I'm saying. Like, um, there's got to be there's some, there's got to be something between Tylenol and Advil that you can take for pain relief if you are, say, trying to push. Because look, here's the thing: in a in a particular time frame, there's sometimes where you do need to push through the the pain of of training if you have a specific goal and it means a lot to you, and the training supersedes the 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 rest and you can function if you have pain medication what what are you supposed to do in that case like what what would be the best way to manage the pain absolutely so all right let's use an otq qualifier for that so megan you're about to make it to the otq you have a little bit of of um of uh achilles tendinopathy and you go see your pt and your pt's like yeah you know it's there we're gonna tape it we're gonna do all sorts of stuff. Some of the things that some people have done and some sports medicine physicians <clears throat> have done is they have they have prescribed this person um, steroids, uh, oral steroids that you do for when you get like a really bad upper uh, respiratory infection and things like that, like we do with kids when they have really bad asthma. Um, we prescribe them steroids for a short period of time, n- not like within 10 days of competition, but we'll put them on steroids and then we'll we'll see how they're feeling and we'll have them rest and pull run or use the lever, use the bike, cross train in some other way, and then see how they feel. And some people won't do anything until race. <clears throat> and then they'll just go by feel. You have to be careful with an OTQ athlete because they could be drug tested. Uh, and these things all have to be cleared, um, you know, by the uh, drug enforcement agencies of the, the doping policies of the, of the event. Um, and you have to disclose it. Even inhalers, you have to disclose, right? There's a certain number of puffs you're allowed to take in competition, just so you know. Um, I didn't realize I have a bunch of inhalers I haven't been using. (laughs) (laughs) I will, I'll tell you a story towards the end about inhalers. But anyway, so yeah, we, inhalers is another one. But in your situation, say you're two weeks out and we can do this and we find what the protocol is with the governing body on, on taking medication. If we can do it, fantastic. If they say, no, you can't, it's too close. She's going to pop and be positive and she's not going to make the team uh, or not make the trials. Then in that case, if you know you're going to be tested, then you could, then you're better off resting and during that time and cross training and not risking it for the non-competitive athletes, the us 
the you know, mid-packers, back-of-the-packers, people, what have you, regular runners, not OTQing, then those individuals with their sports decision then can determine if they get on a regimen where they do a couple of different things. Some people can say you could do acupuncture. Some people say you can, you could do the tape, you could do the time off, you could do the steroids, <clears throat> then come back. There is a risk with steroids that you could send in rupture on some of these individuals because it could weaken your, your uh, tendons. Uh, it could affect your musculature in that sense. So we have to be very careful with these things. It's, remember, these uh, these um, medications are all going to suppress something that you have flared up, and you're just trying to get to the finish line. For example, someone trying to get to Boston or trying to get to New York or trying to get to their Ironman, you have to weigh the benefits and the risks of that at that time with that athlete individually. Um, so you can be like, well, can you do another race? No. Are you going to Kona and they're not going to give you another slot and you're screwed and you can, and you, it took you 10 years to get here. Then we're going to roll the dice. You know, you're going to walk a lot that day and just be realistic about what you what, can and cannot do on race day. What's the painkiller that you give uh, people who are really sick? The, the painkiller? You mean like fentanyl? It, no, you wouldn't give that to somebody. Or, right? No, no, no. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't give. No, the, the, I'm meth, uh, what's the, not methadone. Uh, what's the one that like, if, like somebody like, they give them, it's like the really hardcore pain medication. Yeah, yeah, no. So fentanyl, dilaudid, uh, Percocet, oxycodone, all of these are class, you know, one and two narcotics um, that are that are highly regulated. And some individuals have taken some morphine. medications. Morphine. I'm taking morphine. Morphine. Yeah. When would we give morphine? No, yeah, would, could don't. you think that you could, you, could you run fast on morphine? <laughs> If you could stay awake and conscious, All right. like I got, I got morphine and it made me hypotensive and and I got like I felt like burning like all the way from Oof. my head to my toes. Oh, wow. So not no bueno. Yeah. But if we can, I've had many friends of mine do races and have self medicated and used Tylenol, and they'll have it during the race too. So be very careful. There's a limit to the amount of Tylenol you can have. Um, the bottles will tell you how many you could take. But like some people will take, uh, you know, uh, two Tylenols of 500 milligrams at the beginning of the race, and then it lasts six to eight hours. So you have to be very careful. You don't want to take it. So I've heard people dosing in the middle of a race oh, wow. <laughs> with another two, and you're like, and then they go out and drink, mm-hmm. and so you guys really knows what's doing to your liver. Yeah. Um, so in the man, in, in our marathon, we're very cautious, and we document. If you get medication, we know you got medication, and it's it's we have an EMR medical record. So we keep track of it. For the everyday runner, I'm not advocating that you run out there with Tylenol in your back. But if you're injured and you want to do this, consult with your primary care physician and your sports um, physician and let them know that this is what you want to use and let them help decide for you. But Advil's um, the bad guy. Tylenol Advil's the bad guy in the, in the group. And I'm not trying to tell you that Advil's bad for everything. It has its purpose. <laughs> You know, there's an Advil Tylenol combo now that everybody's taking, and I have like family members coming up to me. This stuff is fantastic. This is really good. You should have it. I'm like, we're not going to have it at the race. <laughs> um, it can cause GI bleeding, the ibuprofen too. That's yeah. another big risk that we worry about. Um, bad. I have a history of ulcers from all the all the racing and everything I did for Ironman and being in that overtraining zone for so many years. I was overtrained for quite a bit of time, you know, and I didn't recognize it and I was burned out for quite some time. And then it took me a long time. And then I went to marathon and think it'd be easier. And it's only harder. (laughs) I agree. But the best thing you could do for your body is, is to try to stay away from anything that's, that's 
anti-inflammatory all the time. Non-steroidals are, are not the best. You should not train with them on board. It's okay to take them in between if you don't have a history of ulcers or bleeding uh, or any GI disorders. Uh, it's relatively safe. And just be careful with the window of when you took it last and your next training session. Other than that, you should be okay. You should try dosing with some Tylenol too instead. I'm Remember, scared of Advil now. I'm getting rid of that stuff. <laughs> Have to just don't use it before uh, training. You're good. <laughs> You're good. You should be okay. Yeah, you have to be very careful. Uh, yeah, I tell people that the bottom line is keep running. Keep running, keep running, because all the studies show that training and running and, and the events and everything and the positive uh, effects on it for longevity, for your heart, and for your long-term well-being outweighs any other risk. Yeah, let's face it. Uh, obesity is worse for your knees than running. I just got an MRI yesterday of my left knee because I had like this uh, chondromalacia that was just driving me nuts. And I, I could have sworn I had a lateral meniscus tear. And I just I saw the result within an hour of taking it. And I'm like, I'm just, it's just a little wear and tear from stepping wrong at night at 5 a.m. Yeah. Avoiding the heat in Miami. That's the, <laughs> that's the best part of getting older is waking up every day like you like worked out really hard the day before. It's like you have to like yeah, I, I pop and crackle. <laughs> Getting out of it bed. It be fun in yeah. your house. Yeah. 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 So there, there are, there's a couple of things we didn't talk about. We could always talk about. I was going to say, I, I, I realize we're way over time here and I feel like I could ask you a thousand more questions. So maybe we just have to have you back on and uh, go over so, some more. That would be great. There's a couple of things we didn't talk about, like AFib and things like that, that are real and we need to talk about those down the road. All right. Why don't we do this? Why don't we schedule a time to talk in, a, in like a couple of months and we can cover some more stuff. And that way, it, maybe this is like a quarterly checkup with your doctor, and we could be we could, we could have like a quarterly segment or something like that to go over some of the health stuff. Um, yeah, and I think people would yeah. find that interesting. I mean, that's pretty much how we started with uh, Megan. Megan was him, like, yeah. "We're like, hey, we didn't get to everything." <laughs> All right, and then yeah. does that mean that I'll get faster if I stay if I come on more? Definitely, often? So like, I'll be as fast as Megan. A, oh, good. Yeah, it's a guarantee. Uh, I think here's the thing that was like. Um, it was two chemicals coming together. It was Megan had the training part down, but not the nutrition. And of course, Feathers had the nutrition down, but wasn't quite there with training. And when the two kind of came together, and this one gave nutrition advice, this one gave training advice, both of them just went nuts. Yeah, worked out. Yeah, you guys really have a good synergy. I'm sure you've heard it from a million people, but <laughs> congratulations on having such a great podcast and and what you're doing for the community is is amazing and i I can only uh commend you all for your hard work 